selection of psalms. There's all sorts of different moods and different situations in the psalms. And each different one challenges us to feel an involvement with that particular situation, that particular mood. And this psalm I've chosen because it's a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. There's that particular type of psalm and this is a representative of it. So this is my introduction to ask this question. Uh, where, where do I fit in in this world? Where, where do I fit in in this world? What is it that gives me identity, this is who I am, and meaning, this is why my life's worth living, and purpose, this is what I'm living for. So I suppose some people approach this by trying to be a king and to uh, exert power and rule and get, getting money, getting power. Some people approach it as a warrior, fighting, fighting for things, fighting against things, fighting perhaps against everyone and everything maybe. Or some people are just warriors rather than warriors, drifting and feeling that the world is just too confusing, too big, which one might feel useless and helpless and aimless. The king, the warrior and the warrior. But the psalm wants to make, wants to answer the question by saying you need to be a worshipper. A worshipper fits in by fitting in with the creator who made each of us. The psalm is going to say that that alignment with my creator is the very thing that aligns me in my identity, in the meaning of my life and in the purpose of my life. And the psalm is going to have two particular angles on that. The number one is in the first few verses to praise and bring glory to our maker. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. And that taps in on the thought that all things are made for his glory. And when I begin to be a person in this world for his glory, then I've begun to fit in to what I'm meant to be. And the second strand of this is dependence, and that's what's at the end of the psalm, where the psalm singers say, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. And the psalm is going to end with this theme of depending on the Lord. This is how I live from day to day, not as an autonomous king or as a warrior fighting against him or as a warrior unsure about my place in the world, but as I trust in the Lord, this gives me my place in this world. I become a worshipper. That's the answer that the psalm gives. So that's where we're going to go with the psalm. And uh, let me explain the plan to you. 
The first three verses give reasons to sing. Um, Sorry, it tells us to sing and the rest of it gives us the reasons. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. So the psalm starts off very strong on praising the Lord. Uh, And uh, you could almost say that that pinpoints a particular occasion. Uh, You're all together, you stop and you praise God together, which is exactly what we've done as we've gathered together this morning. And as the commentator Derek Kidner says, he says we're to praise him with fervour and freshness and skill. Good set of things to combine together, isn't it? Fervour, so sing joyfully to the Lord. Freshness, sing a new song, verse 3, and skill, play skillfully. So it's involving uh, our uh, emotions and our minds and our creativity in singing to the Lord. So I, didn't, I looked up what a ten-stringed lyre looked like, and that was the nearest I could get. Make music, Tim, on the ten-stringed lyre. So that's the people doing what it says there. And the end of it, to trust. Uh, a way of living rather than a, just a one-off or periodic event It seems to me that that is a long-term approach, a way of living, quiet joy, patience, and prayer. We wait on the Lord. Uh, We wait in hope on the Lord. And the, the prayer, verse 22, may your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So there's the way of living. That's, uh, if you like, the, the Sunday thing is the sing joyfully to the Lord and the Monday to Saturday thing is the waiting in hope on the Lord. He is our help and our shield. That's a little bit of a, an oversimplification, isn't it? And the reasons for singing and living that way, uh, I, I suggest, are in the, the verses in between. And I've got, I think, five of them. And they've all got a k in them. So if you can remember three out of five, by the end of it, you're doing very well. So his active character, his careful creation, his sovereign schemes, a bit forced, isn't it? His blessed choice and his watchful care. So those, I thought, were five subtopics as we go through. I hope they're more helpful than unhelpful. His active character his careful creation, his sovereign schemes, his blessed choice, and his watchful care. So I'm just going to go through the psalm and pick out those uh, five topics. Uh, And it, it struck me, and I've added this in this morning as I read it all over again. The psalm is about the Lord as creator of all. And that makes him Lord of the material world and Lord of the inhabited world. And the psalm is about how to be right in that situation. He is the Lord who's made heaven and earth. The nations are before him, but in particular, there are his people, the upright, the righteous, those who trust in him, and how to fit in to that. Okay, let's carry on. How needful and blessed to be in right relation to him. 
Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Why do we sing him a new song and play skillfully and shout for joy? For, let me just stop for a second. It's a little bit of a cliche, but when people pray, they say, we just want to praise you, Lord. The Bible hardly ever, if ever, does it like that. We just want to praise you. The Bible says we want to praise you for this reason. It nearly always gives a reason for it. And it doesn't just say we just want to praise you. We want to praise you for this reason. And here's a reason that he gives straight off in verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. And he's starting off with uh, the way God has made everything and the way God works everything. And in particular, he starts off with the idea of the word of the Lord as the instrument by which he does this. The word of the Lord. The God of the Bible is a speaking God. And as he speaks into the world, he sort of extends himself into the world and activates things and initiates things and energizes things as he speaks into the world. So the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all his works, would be perhaps a better translation of it. And the earth is full of... So there's the word of the Lord. And he says the word of the Lord is right. Um, The word meaning upright and true. Not meaning uh, mathematically accurate, but so much as meaning dependable, faithful. You can count on his word. So different from us, isn't it? Uh, We we tend to say, I'll I'll see you next Tuesday and then cancel. Um, you know, uh, the Lord never does that. He never says, oh, I, sorry, I've just got to text you. I'm going to cancel my promise for today. I'm a bit busy. He never does that. His word is true, is right and true and faithful in all his works. And uh, he, he's going, uh, the, the works includes, well, he, the psalmist is thinking of the world that he's made, isn't he? The, the world, which I've done a little sketch of there. And he says... In making the world and running the world, please notice this, uh, verse 5, the Lord loves. Now, what does he love? He loves these uh, fantastic Hebrew words, obviously translated into English. He loves tzedakah, righteousness. He loves righteousness. He loves things done rightly, honorably, truthfully, honestly, with integrity. He loves righteousness. Uh, A similar word, mishpat, justice, order, right order. It's the opposite of chaotic. It's the opposite of people just doing their own thing and getting in each other's way. He loves uh, an orderly, fair world. He loves tzedakah and mishpat. And it says uh, he loves righteousness and justice, the earth is full of unfailing love. Well, you know this word, hesed. 
and he, he says, uh, so this is, in case you didn't know the word, it's a, it, it's a, a word which is particularly appropriate to the Lord God himself. He specializes in this. It's the sort of love that sticks and holds and doesn't let down and keeps its promises. And uh, you could have a whole psalm on this saying, the steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever. He is king of kings. The steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever. He is lord of lords. The steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever. And so on. This beautiful quality of God that he is full of steadfast love. And it is said here, the earth is full of his steadfast love. Uh, So the psalmist looks around, he says, you can see many things in this world, but one of the things I don't want you to miss is the, and it's still there, you can still see it even in this fallen world, the orderliness and the care and the, the, uh, the integrity of God, the earth is full of his steadfast love. So on a picture, I just put some splashing over the side of the world because it's full of his steadfast love. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Uh, it teaches us to look rightly, doesn't it? Because, you know, you can look in the world, see all sorts of different things, but he says, I want you to see what I see, that the earth is full of his steadfast love. And just moving on through this, so we're talking about his active character. And this makes the psalmist enthusiastic about creation. God fills creation with the expression of himself. And as Christians, we too need to follow our our Saviour in this. Uh, It's right for us to go off on holiday and take pictures of the stars and the seas and the forests and the mountains and the sun and the moon. When we were in our holiday, one of the striking things was you go outside at about nine o'clock at night, the sky was black because we weren't near a town and the stars just burst out of the sky. And it's so impressive. We don't really get that in our urban... Um, skyscape, but uh, the the ancient writers would have been totally impressed. Look at the the hands that flung stars into space. You can see them. You know they're almost close enough to touch. It would seem, and they sparkle and and gleam. The psalmist is enthusiastic about creation, and that includes family, marriage, food, picnics. Roses, these sorts of things. Uh, The the old rabbis used to say that people would be judged for the the good, honest pleasures that God has given that we have failed to take up on. I don't know whether the old rabbis were quite right on that, but uh, in the New Testament it says God gives us all things richly to enjoy. And we uh, we shouldn't be down on this created world. We shouldn't be down on family or down on marriage or down on enjoying food or having a picnic from time to time or smelling the roses. Uh, God's made all that stuff and the psalmist is enthusiastic about it and the psalmist is enthusiastic about God. These qualities, their relational and moral qualities, he's the God who loves rightness and fairness and dependability and compassion and trustworthiness 
This is our God. Not all gods are like this God. This is our God. They're beautiful qualities. And he says, for this reason, sing joyfully. And I suppose you'd also say, imitate him. Uh, be yourself as someone made in his image, somebody who loves righteousness and fairness and dependability <coughs> and compassion and trustworthiness, etc. Let's move on a little bit. We're still talking about, now we're talking about his careful creation. So we'll come into verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the spirit of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. He's speaking metaphorically, isn't he? But he's saying something uh, as he speaks metaphorically. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. So we have the word parallel, uh, so that's dabar, word, with breath, which is ruach, which is spirit. Breath and spirit, the same thing in Hebrew and the same thing in Greek. So you've got the word and the spirit together here. The, uh, there's, a little, there's a little play on words with heavens, which is shamayim, and waters, which is mayim. So the, uh, the heavens were made with the stars and everything, and the mayim, the waters. And it says... Uh, I wonder what we're to make of this. Little children like water play. I expect we're, we're too grown up to do water play unless we don't have a dishwasher, when we call it doing the washing up. Is this, is this verse in, in, in inviting us to think that, that the, the vast oceans are to God the sort of thing he can pour into jars and pour out again and because he's so great even the great oceans are things that he can pour this way and that he uh, it says he gathers the waters of the seas into jars he puts the deep into storehouses and he does this as he speaks where have I got that uh, verse 9 he spoke it says the Lord's word of power is not relativized by creation, but is supreme over creation. It isn't that you, in this world around us, we've got a number of forces, and they're all sort of fairly powerful, and one of the forces is the Lord. I think that's how our default mental position on this. We think there's many forces around us, so there's the bus timetable, there's the weather, uh, there's how I'm feeling today, uh, there's, uh, you know whoever we're up against or, and whatever. And the, and the Lord is one of the players in this. And the, the, the psalm says, actually, that's not right. The Lord is the overarching Lord of all the things. He is Lord of the bus timetable. He is Lord of how your digestion is today. He is Lord of the admissions process. He is Lord of first day at school. He is Lord of all these things. Uh, he is not relatively a percentage of it. He's supreme over this. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the spirit of his mouth. He gathers the sea, the waters of the sea into jars. He gathers the waters of the... Sorry, he puts the deep into storehouses. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let the people of the world revere him. For he spoke 
and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. This reminds us then that nothing is too hard for the Lord. It's worth being reminded of this. When we, when we pray, we're not praying to a God who's going to have a problem answering our prayer. Well, at least not unless we're asking him to commit sin. We're not praying to a God who is, you know, it's touch and go whether, it's not like, the, like a test match, you know, whether you think, will, will they actually get to the end of this? Will God be able to do this? There's no problem with God being able. The, the thing is, is it part of his will? And is it part of his will at this time? So we, we, we get this wrong about prayer, don't we? We think, I'm going to pray to God because he needs a bit of a push to do this. And uh, if I... If I push it, maybe you'll manage it. It's not like that at all. Uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he pleases. What we're, what we're praying to is to, to be engaged in, in what his will is, isn't it? If it is your will, you can do this, Lord. And the Lord can do what is impossible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. No. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. And while we just stop on this matter of the word, we could slide over into the New Testament and notice that the beginning of John's Gospel, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And that's the word who is Jesus himself. The, sort of the back of all creation is the word and like one of us entering the world of dino trucks which would be a weird thing the saviour has entered our world his glory veiled to save us the word became flesh and dwelt among us let's move on so that was his careful creation number three his sovereign schemes So the psalmist moves to this thought, verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. And this is to do with planning and scheming and policies and and programs. I should have done it with P, shouldn't I? His power and his plans intrude into the, the affairs of actual people. So God is not the, uh, um, the deist God who stands a long way off and leaves the world to run by some sort of internal clockwork and he is not bothered with it. Actually, he is bothered with it and he intrudes his plans and schemes into uh, the lives of us. And the, the mention here is of the nations, verse 10. So you think of it in its context. The nations would not have been believers. They would have been opponents. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. So here's the nations, the warlike nations. And they have their plans and schemes. And if you look in Psalm 2, you find a bit more detail about their plans and schemes. Uh, let us, now what does it say? Um, let us break the chains of the Lord and his anointed 
let's get rid of God, let's get rid of his king, let's be like destructs and run the world ourselves. That's the, that's the way the nations think. And of course the, the psalm is pointing out the sin of the nations. The sin of the multitude of the nations is what? Is simply not to let God be God. That's what it is, isn't it? That's the essence of sin. Not to let God be God. God is the ruler. He makes the plans, as we were thinking last Sunday morning. He writes the story. But what human beings want to do is say, we we want to be God. We want to uh, write the story ourselves. We want to rule. We want to do it our way. That's sin. To get rid of the Lord, to get rid of his Messiah, and quite possibly to get rid of his people. But it says, the Lord foils the plans of the nations and thwarts the purposes of the people. God's sovereign schemes. A little bit like in Psalm 2 where the nations come up and say, we're going to get you, God, we're going to get rid of you. It's a bit like a little toddler saying to his dad, I'm going to knock you down, and the dad is this big and the toddler is that big. And the Lord who sits in heaven and laughs. Your schemes will come to nothing. Foil your schemes and thwart your schemes because I'm the Lord. His sovereign schemes. And I can just stop and say, which schemes are you living by? It's a very important question. Whether uh, uh, at root and at base, you're saying, the Lord's will be done in my life. That's what my life is. It's for his will. I offer myself as a living sacrifice for his will. His will be done. Or whether you're saying, well, I'd like his will to be done as long as it coincides with my will. It's quite different, isn't it? So this is my plan. Lord, help me with my plan. That's a different, that's a different way of doing it. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. His sovereign schemes. The Lord has plans and schemes, as it goes on to say in verse 11. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Which is a very strong statement, isn't it? That the Lord, the God of Israel, the creator God the God and Father of Jesus Christ, has his plans and schemes. Sometimes they work very quickly and sometimes they work very slowly, but nothing stops them. Nothing stops. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Um, Brothers and sisters, I think we really should grab hold of this. Because in, the, in our thought world, because we're not God, we see things confusing, we see things not working. Not working the way that we think they ought to work. But we shouldn't be taken in by that. That's just our perception of it. The truth of the matter is, God is working out his purposes. His purposes stand firm through all generations. And he will not be thwarted. He says, I will. This is my plan, I will do it. 
I will make the seed of the woman crush the serpent's head. I will do that. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. I will, Isaiah 11, 9, I will make, oh dear, I will fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I will do that, says the Lord. Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said on a more personal level, I will come back and take you to be with myself. If it were not so, I would have told you. These plans and purposes he will do. Nothing can stop him. I will, says God in Revelation 21, 5, I will make all things new. I'm going to do that. Nothing will stop. The timing of it, the way we get to it, says God, well, I understand that. You don't necessarily, but I will do that. I will do that. Fourth thing, his blessed choice. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. So as God looks down on the world, the nations are doing their thing, but here is a nation whom God has chosen and blessed, a group of people we might say, as we come into New Testament terms, uh, that God has chosen. Blessed are the people. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And uh, it's a nation, and as we know from the other Psalms, it has a headquarters, or it used to have a headquarters on earth, and a holy hill, and a, a holy place, uh, which nowadays is, is, is different in New Testament times. Blessed. Can we just stop on that word? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. This is how people become Christians. This is how people are Christians. This is how people are to understand what it is to be a Christian. You've been chosen. Now, I know there are other processes that were involved. I know there there were processes involved, reasoning, maybe struggling, praying, working things out all of that on the, the human level, but underneath, the reason that you're a Christian is because God decided you'd be a Christian. You're blessed because you've been chosen. And uh, Paul says this to the Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We have to sort of recalibrate for that, don't we? You're blessed. If you're a believer, you are blessed because God chose you to be that. As I just repeat, there are other processes involved and they're not nothing, they're significant, but this is more significant. You're a Christian because God decided to bless you and he chose to do so not because you are beautiful, wonderful, clever, anything like that. He just said, I want to bless this rather, currently rather obnoxious person. I just want to bless them and make them a beautiful person in the end. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And blessed are the people he chose for his inheritance. So in the New Testament terms, 
Jesus tells the story about the sheep and the goats being gathered together and of the, I think it's the sheep, isn't it? He says, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And he goes on to say, uh, you visited me when I was in prison, you fed me when I was hungry, and the righteous say, whoa, this can't be right, we never did any of those things. And it goes on to say, well, you did it to other Christian people. But the, that's what goes on later in what Jesus said, but this is the beginning of it. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you, for you since the creation of the world. That's blessed, isn't it? Um, so today this word is not saying to us, you've got to try hard, you've got to do more. It's saying just stop a second and realize how blessed you are if you're a Christian. Just be, uh, find it a breathtaking thing. Blessed to be chosen. Blessed to have an inheritance set up for you. Blessed to be taken from the unbelieving world and brought to Jesus Christ. You're blessed. We need to get a hold of that one, don't we? Mm. Blessed are you, says Jesus. And if we're a Christian, blessed are us. Is that right? Blessed are us. Blessed is us. Blessed. We're blessed. Yeah. His blessed choice, and number five, his watchful care. And the psalm now talks about the vision, no, not vision, the surveillance that the Lord has. Verse 13, from, the, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all the sons of men, all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth, he who forms the hearts of all and considers everything they do. Uh, he says that the Lord sees everybody, sees into their hearts. And he's going to say that as a particular surveillance or particular seeing of his people. And where have I got that? Verse 18. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. So God sees, it would appear in two different ways, in a sort of general seeing, but in a particular seeing. Rather like, let me just give a, a grandparent illustration again, like if your kids are playing on the swings in the park, you keep a particular eye on them, don't you? Get the, I'm sure you get the idea of that, even if you have to imagine that. And he, uh, So we talk about his watchful care. He sees everyone. Verse 16, no king is saved by the size of his army. Oh, I thought they were. Apparently not. No warrior escapes by his great strength. I thought they did. Apparently not. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. So kings are not saved by their military power. Now, I know God works in certain ways, but I think what it's saying here is having military power is no guarantee. If God has decreed otherwise, your military power cannot save you. Kings are not saved by their military power, nor by their personal strength. I'll put another tank there. Uh, nor the tools or aids, which I guess is what a horse is. That doesn't save either. In the big picture, 
in the last analysis, being strong does not cut it with God. If you go to war with God, you will lose. We need the right spectacles to see this. It would be easy to misjudge this and say, well, the strong and the powerful always win. And sometimes it looks like that temporarily. But God says, just hold on, because in the last analysis, human strength does not dominate my plans and schemes. It is only a temporary state of affairs. Uh, I mean, not least, because death will get you in the end anyway. Was it Ozymandias, the poem? The ruin in the sand, where the the sort of half um, eroded caption says, look upon my works, you mighty and despair, and actually it's all tumbled down, because human strength decays. Kings are not saved by the size of their army, nor a warrior by his great strength. And Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The Bible's so countercultural, isn't it? I want to say this is, if I may, as an encouragement, if you feel powerless, if you feel that the whole system is against you, if you feel you're on the wrong end of all the tide of economics and politics and you say, I wish I was a king, I wish I had power, Jesus would say, no, actually you have the blessing if you're a trusting, meek believer looking to the Lord. That makes you stronger than a king. It makes you richer than a multimillionaire. You will inherit the, the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. His watchful care. The Almighty sees and watches all people, but he particularly sees his people. Verse 18. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. It doesn't mean fear in a trembling, uh, craven way, but it's fear in the sense of the, the hugest respect, the greatest um, place in one's vision, I put there, meaning to respectfully and deliberately and sacrificially put him first. For the, the, the believer who fears the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are upon that person. And you might think, oh, I've been forgotten. I'm in a world of currents and tides and things. Who am I? And God says, if you're, if you're putting me first, then my eye is on you. you know, when you're in the big playground of this world, I'm watching you so that you don't trip over, so that you don't fall head first down the slide, so that you don't fall off the swings. I'm, my eye's on you, in that sense. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, whose hope is in his unfailing love. And here's that wonderful uh, word again, hesed. And it's really brought into play here, isn't it? He's saying, this is the characteristic of these people. They put their dependence on his unfailing love. So that word hope could mean weight or trust 
and they're sort of intermingled here. And he says that this is what believing people do. They trust in the Lord God. And this might mean waiting. It might mean that he doesn't do it straight away. But you know that through thick and thin, he will never let you down. And this is the characteristic of these people, isn't it? They put their hope in his unfailing love. And it isn't just pie in the sky when you die, because it's actually cake on your plate while you wait. Because in verse 19, he delivers them from death. And he keeps them alive in famine. So it really works in everyday life. It doesn't solve everything, but he can be trusted in everyday life. But it works beyond everyday life. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And I think that's a prayer for... I mean, it is actually a prayer, isn't it, that last bit? May your unfailing love rest upon us, even as we wait in you. I had a text from somebody the other day who said, I can't wait for God to do such and such, such and such. And my reply was that it is those who wait for the Lord who renew their strength. Our our relationship, our fitting in with God, fitting in with his plans, involves, uh, to some degree or another, waiting. Putting our hope in him. He will not let us down. He might not do it the way we want. He might not do it with the timing that we want. But he will unfailingly keep his promises. And those who fear him, hope, wait on his unfailing love, his hesed. Which leads to actual answers to prayer in the here and now. But in the end, uh, long term brings full and final salvation. We wait for the coming of the Saviour, don't we? That's the ultimate thing we wait for. We wait for the revelation of the Son of God from heaven. So, we have been thinking about reasons to praise God and reasons to trust God. And the points I picked out were his active character. Uh, he, He works. The earth is full of his unfailing love. He is faithful in all his works. His careful creation. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and the starry host by the breath of his mouth. He is over creation and cares for it. His sovereign schemes, the nations plot in vain. He foils the plans of the nations, but his own plans stand. And we thought about his blessed choice, that of all the peoples of the world, how blessed it is for him to have chosen us, to have set his love upon us, how privileged we are. If if you're not in that position yet, ask him. I'd love to be in that, Lord. Bring me into that, whatever it takes, whatever the mystery of it, bring me into that position. His watchful care, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. That's how we fit in with the Lord. That's how we find the place that we are supposed to be when we become not warriors or warriors or try to make ourselves kings, but we become worshippers. These are the reasons that the psalm gives to praise the Lord. Let's get our heads into gear to be grateful. This is a good God. It's a great position to be in. And these are the reasons that the psalm gives to live day by day trusting the Lord. And let's be people who live by trusting him. 
And if we're in that place, that's exactly the place God wants us to be. If we're in that place of thanking him and trusting him, that's exactly the place God wants us to be. We're going to sing together.